Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, right. <laughs> Meant to do that. want to wrap up this conversation uh, that began with Jesus and his disciples but spread to the crowd around last uh, we, we started this last Lord's Day morning and even the week before that began in verse 31 last week we spent our time in Mark 8:34, and uh, today we want to pick up in verse 35 and carry it through uh, the end of this paragraph which is uh, chapter 9 verse 1 let me say before I read our passage, um, if I said anything last Lord's Day morning that was uh, disagreeable or uh, uncomfortable for you, I would love to talk to you about it, and please don't hesitate to come and see me or mention it to me. I realize some of those things were hard to hear, but I didn't write it, and you know, it's just what it says right here, but nonetheless... Uh, if you found them disagreeable, we'd love to visit with you about it. So let's read our passage today. I'm going to start at verse 34 and pick up that verse, and I'll read through uh, chapter 9, verse 1. So let's listen to the Word of God. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. May God bless his words, and I'm going to stop and ask for help as we continue to look at this passage this morning. Pray with me, please. Father, we come to the word, the, the words, the very words you breathed out uh, through your apostles and prophets. These are your words. Uh, they're not merely man's words. Uh, and because they're your words, they bear authority. Uh, and so we want to be careful to submit ourselves to your words, to put ourselves under them. Under them, We don't want to stand in judgment on your word. We want your word to stand over us and guide us and lead us and show us what to do. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us in your word how to be free from sin and how we can be saved from our sin and become your followers, Lord Jesus, and enjoy eternal, eternal bliss with you in heaven. And thank you, Father, for revealing this to us in your word. Please guide us today and, and give us clear understanding, Jesus, of what you said to the crowd. And help me to speak and think clearly today. Uh, and we entrust ourselves to you now. Uh, 
Savior. In your name we pray, amen. There was a, uh, a pastor from Great Britain named J.C. Ryle, uh, was a pastor during the 1800s. And uh, uh, I think he was also in London at the same time Charles Spurgeon was our, our good friend, Charles Spurgeon. This is J.C. Ryle. Um, uh, I came across a good quote from Ryle this week that I want to share with you this morning. And I'd ask you to think uh, back on your own Christian experience and uh, see if what Ryle said is maybe what you've experienced in the churches you have grown up in. So the quote goes like this uh, from Ref Tunes that I found yesterday. Uh, Ryle said, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day. Remember, he's writing in the 1800s. A common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. Well, then about a hundred years later, somebody else came along, a, a pastor from Chicago. Uh, his name was A.W. Tozer. And he said something very similar to, to Ryle. Uh, Tozer said this. I don't have a cartoon of Tozer, I'm sorry. <laughs> the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to our sin nature. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is, quote, saved, but he is not hungry or thirsty after God. In fact, he's specifically taught to be satisfied, satisfied and encouraged to be content with little. Again, that was uh, said uh, probably in the 40s. Uh, Tozer pastored on the south side of Chicago. Amazing that that long ago, he uh, could echo the words of J.C. Ryle on his assessment of the church in America. Well, then, 1987... Uh, mid-80s, there's a pastor from Philadelphia named James Montgomery Boyce, Boyce who said also something similar to them. And this is about 40, 50 years later from Tozer. There's a fatal defect in the life of Christ's church in the 20th century. A lack of true discipleship. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps a majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even more furious activity, there is actually very little following of Christ himself. And that means in some circles there is very little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord, are not Christians. What do you think about that? What do you think of those three assessments uh, spaced throughout history? Would you agree? Um, but, and, and even more pointedly, uh, not only has Christianity in the United States and other places uh, across the world um, become cheap and it offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, even more importantly than their assessments, 
Does it describe the faith you have? Did you ever hear Christ say, whoever wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? So we're, we're, we're stuck between two places. What we see in many churches in America, even many in Cherokee County, versus what these men describe it as, is, is cheap Christianity. Um, what is the true nature of discipleship? Um, what is the gospel according to Jesus? This is what we started to answer last week. Was the gospel he proclaimed the offer of salvation and forgiveness without commitment, with no strings attached? Or did the call of Jesus surrender uh, include a call to surrender to his lordship? Last Sunday, I, I divided our passage uh, into three headings. And last Sunday morning, we looked at two of them uh, from verse 34. The first heading was the ranks of discipleship. Uh, to whom did Jesus extend this invitation? Who does Jesus call to discipleship? And verse 34 tells us that this call wasn't just for the heavy-duty Christian. Uh, the call to discipleship was extended to the entire crowd. Look at verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. It's not just for the 12. It's not an invitation for uh, more serious follow followers to enter a higher level of commitment. This is the basic call to anyone who wants to become a Christian. Anyone who desires to become a follower of Jesus is, is called to make this kind of commitment that he goes on to describe in the second half of verse 34, which leads to our second heading, the requirements of discipleship. In the middle of verse 34, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him take up and let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, this is what Jesus expects of those who follow him. And last Sunday, we noted these three requirements. Deny yourself. Uh, those who want to follow Christ must renounce their own personal agenda. They must deny their interests and put Christ's first. Uh, a clear call for us to surrender our lives to Jesus and submit to his lordship. And then take up your cross, uh, or uh, uh, you could say take up your execution stake. It's not merely a call to suffer hardship and discomfort. It's a, it's a call to in, be willing to endure humiliation and, if necessary, suffer death for the name of Christ. Yeah, this is something that you would die for. And how many of us think of Christianity in those terms? Would you die for it? Would you die for the name of Christ? That's what Jesus says it means to follow him. And then this third requirement, excuse me, I jumped ahead. How did I do that? Follow him. And that doesn't mean just get behind him and walk behind him. It did, uh, used in, in the beginning of verse uh, 34, uh, that's how it was used. But this use of follow him here at the end of verse 34 refers to following him in obedience uh, as we would say follow my instructions that's what what he's asking follow my teaching obey my commands anyone who wishes to follow jesus to be a christian 
is called to follow in obedience to Christ. And I, I sarcastically referred to this as a novel idea last Sunday. Wow. Uh, to actually obey Christ and what he says. These requirements, I agree with those three men. That's not the kind of gospel heard very often in the, in the United States. And as those three men lamented, most presentations of the gospel don't say anything about what Christ said are requirements to become a disciple of Jesus. I know they're tough to swallow. Uh, Jesus has set the bar high for those who would follow him. And after hearing these, you might ask yourself, well, why would anyone want to become a follower of Jesus then? Why would anyone want to, want to follow if the bar is this high? You know, after all, I'm not too keen on surrendering my life to him. I like my life, and I'm especially not too keen on it if it means humiliation and, and possibly death. So, <laughs> you know, no thanks. And Jesus seems to anticipate that because in this third heading, he gives us the rationale of discipleship or the reasons for discipleship. Uh, why should you become his disciple? And he goes on to list three reasons, reasons in verses 35 and following. The first reason is your salvation. Yes, that's what he says. Uh, we should follow Jesus the way he's been describing in these verses because our salvation depends on it. And here in verse 35, we'll see that the call Jesus has made is not the call to, become, to, to go to a higher level of a Christian, but to become a Christian in the first place. Look at verse 35 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This verse, and it might sound confusing to you uh, with good reason, uh, it's called a paradox. A paradox is something that appears to be contradictory or a statement that goes against common sense. Anyone who wants to avoid the requirements Jesus has been talking about in verse 34, especially the possibility of death. So that's anyone who wants to save his life in this world will lose his life in eternity. But then whoever loses his life here, whoever denies himself, takes up his cross and follows in obedience for the name of Jesus and to spread the good news of his payment for sin, the person who loses his life in this world will save it for all eternity. Let me explain further. The ESV Study Bible, if you're holding one, has a very helpful comment right here. And it says, Jesus' paradoxical, paradoxical statement demands two different senses of the word life. Now, hang with me. Whoever lives a self-centered life focused on this present world, in other words, the person who would save his life, will not find eternal life with God. He will lose it. 
Whoever gives up his self-centered life of a rebellion against God, the one who loses his life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, will find everlasting communion with God. He will save it. I hope you can see that Jesus really is talking about becoming a Christian here. In these verses, and he's not talking about a second tier or higher level of Christianity. He's talking about salvation. So to save your life in this world, to avoid humiliation and death, uh, uh, is to lose your life in eternity. But to lose your life here, deny yourself, take up your cross, and, and follow in obedience. Uh, to lose your life here, you will save it for communion with Christ. Okay, so Jesus goes on in verse 36 to, to explain this to us, uh, to explain what he just said in verse 35. So verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's using financial terms in verse 36 in this explanation. What profit... Or advantage is there for the man who would save his life, who lives a self-centered life focused on this world? What advantage is there to the one who reaches the height of human ambition? That's what he means by gain the whole world. Uh, it's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer from the crowd. So it's really a statement. And what Jesus means by verse 36 is there is no advantage for the person who achieves everything possible but forfeits his soul. There's no gain. There's no profit for the person who climbs the ladder but, but who suffers the loss of eternal life. There, there, there's, no, there's no gain, financial or otherwise. You could achieve the height of human success and achievement and ambition. You can do all that and you will forfeit your soul. And then there's yet another explanation in verse 37. These all begin with the word for. So Jesus continues to explain himself. And in verse 37, he says, For what can a man give in return for his soul? No matter what they earn, no matter what they achieve, no matter how big their stock portfolio becomes, if they reach the height of human achievement, uh, if they get the corner office, if they become vice president in charge of marketing, whatever, if they gain the whole world, it will never be enough to redeem their soul. It will never be enough to purchase eternal life. And so pursuing all this world has to offer is to forfeit life with Christ in eternity. The person who, who's gone after everything in this life, uh, you, only want, you only go around once in life, go for, go for all the gusto you can. Is that the old beer commercial I used to hear? Go for the gusto, whatever gusto is. The person who's gone for the gusto, pursued a self-centered life, they wind up a loser in the end. They've lost eternal life with Christ in heaven. Friends, that's what Christ says. Those are his words. This is, um, verse 37 is, 
similar to what we read just moments ago in Psalm 49. Why should I fear in times of trouble? The, in, the iniquity of my foes surrounds me. They trust in their wealth and boast of their abundant riches. Yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God. Since the price of redeeming him is too costly, one should forever stop trying. There is nothing of all that we gain here that will pay the price for our souls. Uh, there's a good illustration of this uh, in a gentleman called William Somerset Maugham. He was, uh, according to Pastor Kent Hughes, he was the most famous author of the 1930s. He was known by Willie as those uh, close to him. Uh, he was an accomplished novelist, um, playwright, sh and short story writer. His novel of human bondage is uh, allegedly a classic. His play, The Constant Wife, has been staged by thousands, uh, thousands of times. He was a man who lived for his own refined tastes, his comfort, and his sexual perversions. And in 1965, at the age of 91, he was still extremely wealthy, although he hadn't written in years. He still received uh, over 300 fan letters a week. But what had life brought this man? His pursuit of this world, the one who would save his life in this world. The London Times published an excerpt, and this was written by uh, Mom's nephew, Robin. And Robin Mom writes this, makes these observations. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth 600,000 pounds. This is in 1965. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera, he dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me. And I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that this text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. Robin Mom goes on to describe an empty, bitter old man who repeatedly fell into shrieking terrors as though speaking to some unseen being, mom would cry out, go away, I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. He was a man who had gained the whole world and yet had lost his soul. A keeper, one would keep his soul, but lost it. Why do we follow Jesus' call to discipleship? It's because our salvation depends on it. This is what it means to 
to enter a relationship with Christ, to, to turn uh, away from uh, our sin and worldly pleasures, to trust in Christ, uh, to trust in his payment for sin on the cross, to renounce our own agenda and follow his. Uh, this is what Jesus says in 30, 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Your salvation is one of the reasons we should follow his call. Well, there's another reason here. It's your shame. And by shame, I mean avoiding shame. Uh, we should answer his call to discipleship to avoid eternal shame and embarrassment. Note for, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Ashamed means to experience feelings of guilt, uh, embarrassment, or disgrace. Ashamed refers to concealing your commitment to Jesus and his word in order to, to maintain your standing in the world, to keep your honor uh, in front of your friends or your co-workers. And, and notice how these friends and co-workers are described in verse 38 uh, in this adulterous and sinful generation. He's, Jesus is referring to those who, uh, by those who, uh, whoever is ashamed, Jesus is referring to those who, who hide their commitment uh, to Christ, uh, to be accepted by those who are in rebellion against him. Uh, this is the very thing we saw Peter do in the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus was arrested. You recall how he denied knowing Christ three times, denied being with him, uh, and, and especially in the face of the slave girl who confronted him. Avoiding shame and maintaining our honor takes on a little more subtle um, form in our era. And maybe for us, it's laughing at that off-color joke so your coworkers will think you're one of the guys. Or perhaps it's not speaking up when your friends want to watch a movie with sexual content in it. Maybe it's um, not taking exception to the, to the rumors and gossip your friends feel comfortable in, in spreading about your other friend. And all this is heightened when this pressure to fit in comes from someone in authority over you, a boss at work perhaps, where you're expected to, to get along and toe the line so you'll fit in with your coworkers. But according to Jesus, this isn't the kind of shame we should be worried about, the, the shame he mentions at the beginning of verse 38. This being embarrassed or disgraced by the people of this world, there's a shame far greater than this that we should be more concerned about. Look at verse 38 again. For whoever is ashamed of me and, my, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I believe uh, that Jesus is referring to his second coming here when he returns to earth in, in power and glory. 
Uh, this is how he describes it in Matthew 24 and 25. He says something similar. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's why I think that uh, verse 38 here at the end, he's talking about his return at the end of this age. Those who experience embarrassment and shame and disgrace because of Jesus and they hide their commitment to him in this world so they'll preserve their honor and reputation in front of their friends. Those who hide their commitment to him and, and are embarrassed by him will be an embarrassment to Jesus when he returns. You see that here? Those who are embarrassed by him in this world, he'll be embarrassed by them when he comes. Jesus will experience these feelings of shame and embarrassment and disgrace. And these so-called believers who renounce Jesus in this world will be renounced by him in the next world. The embarrassment that Jesus experiences because of them will mean their rejection at the judgment seat of Christ. And so these who were ashamed of him will not hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. They won't hear this. Instead, they'll hear these words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this is why John the Apostle wrote these words in 1 John. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is the shame and embarrassment we should be concerned about. Not the shame and embarrassment from the sinful world around us, but the shame and embarrassment of Jesus at his second coming, the shame and embarrassment that will uh, keep us out of eternity. Embarrassment has, has risen to new heights in our day and age. Uh, with the replay video, it was bad enough that NFL players uh, got to be publicly shamed and embarrassed for their mistake on the playing field through instant replay. Everybody could watch. Everybody in the stadium instantly knew that that guy screwed up. Missed his block. Missed the, didn't cover the receiver. But now it's extended even to you and me through YouTube and Fail Army and video and iPhones and your embarrassing mistake uh, for example, last night I watched a compilation called Complete Idiots at Work. <laughs> it was most entertaining, actually. Our, our embarrassment is, is not just shown in front of a football stadium, it's paraded in front of the whole world. And on Fail Army and YouTube, People from the other side of the world can watch you mess up at whatever you're doing. If somebody has an iPhone, beware of those people who are holding iPhones pointed at you. This is a shame far worse than any of that. This 
embarrassment that Christ experiences as you stand before him, you that denied him in this world and were embarrassed by him, and now he will be embarrassed by you. Oh, we should answer his call to discipleship to avoid this shame, to avoid this shame that is coming. Is that a good reason to follow Jesus? Absolutely. I plead with you, dodge this embarrassment that looms ahead for you that disown Christ here. <clears throat> Heed his call to become a follower of him and surrender to him. Well, there's, there's one more reason to become his disciples. Your salvation depends on it. Your shame depends on it. Your eternal shame, I mean, and we want to avoid that. But there's a third reason to answer Christ's call to discipleship, and that's your sight. Uh, you and I should answer his call so that we can see and experience the power of his kingdom at work, so that we can experience the power of God's kingdom in our lives. We see this in verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. It says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what is Jesus referring to here by the phrase, uh, the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Well, some people, I mean, he just mentioned his second coming in the verse right above this. Many take this as a reference to Christ's second coming at the end of the age. It seems like this could be a reference to the same thing. The problem with this view is Jesus' very solemn statement, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. But here we are in 2023 still waiting for the return of Christ but those standing near him when this was said have all died. And so some have seen this as a failed prediction of Jesus, a prophecy that didn't happen. And this has led them not only to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, but also to deny the authority of the Bible. I do not believe that this is what Jesus is referring to. I do not think this is a reference to his second coming. Others, many others, I would add, believe that this is a reference to the very next verse and the very next event. It's called the transfiguration. And Jesus is transformed uh, before Peter, James, and John, and they see him in radiant splendor, in glory. And some, uh, many, believe that this is what Jesus is referring to, but there are some things that don't quite add up if, if this is what Jesus means. Well, for one thing, look at what he says, some will not taste death. But in verse 2, he says that the next event happens just six days later. It seems like a strange way to say some of you are going to live for six more days. 
So as far as we know, they all lived six more days. Some others question whether the transfiguration quite fits this statement of his, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, I believe there's another way to understand it. And I think, I think verse 1 in the phrase, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, first of all, we have to look at the verb tense. Yes, I'm, I'm going to verb tenses now. Jesus uses the perfect tense, and, and that describes something that's happened, already happened in the past. But it has effects that continue into the present. That's what the perfect tense is. And so the kingdom of God after it has come with power should be translated, the kingdom of God has come with power. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God has already come with power, and it continues in power. Think of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God had come in the presence of the king. Jesus established his invisible kingdom at his first coming. And his disciples would see further evidence that his kingdom had arrived with power through events like the transfiguration, like his death and resurrection, like his ascension to the Father's right hand, like the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And what Jesus is saying to the 12 is that many of them who follow, who have become his disciples, would live to see the open and powerful presence of his kingdom through these events that I just named. So, one Bible scholar says this, Jesus' statement promises a reversal. Some will be able to see his powerless death transformed into glorious vindication and give evidence of God's powerful reign in Jesus as one sees the seed develop into a stalk, head, and full kernel. Some of Jesus' disciples will see the fulfillment of his prediction in stages. The kingdom's power will be undeniably more and more visible to his disciples. Well, that's all fine. Great. What does it have to do with me? Why is this a reason to follow Jesus in his call to discipleship, Pastor Rob? Well, why, while we might not experience events like the transfiguration, like his resurrection, those who follow Christ witness the power of his kingdom when someone else obeys his call to discipleship and puts their faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross. We watch the power of his kingdom transform their lives. 
followers of Jesus also see the power of his kingdom in our own lives, as well as others, as we're set free from sin, and as we grow in Christ's likeness and holiness through the power of his word, each of us knows that power doesn't reside in us. It is the power of Christ working through us. We see the power of his kingdom as it works and transforms us and others as well. And then there's also the possibility that perhaps you and I will live long enough to see the power of his kingdom at his second coming. When it is made visible to all, when he returns in power and glory to consummate his kingdom and make it visible to everyone, maybe we'll live to see that. I think that would be pretty cool. And an amen would have been great right about there. No, it's too late now. Don't bother. No. So we answer his call because of our sight, of what we can see, of what he gives us the privilege to observe, not on the same level as the 12 I grant you, but we still see his powerful kingdom at work as he changes people's lives. So then, what's the true nature of discipleship? And I'm okay if you need to wrestle with this, because I had to. Christy had to. We have humorous stories that we could tell you about how we wrestled with this. What was, what is the gospel according to Jesus? Was it, was it what we heard in our introduction from J.C. Ryle? Cheap Christianity that proclaims the offer of salvation and forgiveness without commitment, with no strings attached? Or did his call include a call to surrender to his lordship? Is that the true nature of discipleship? I believe it is, and we've seen it through these three headings. Uh, we saw it first in the ranks of discipleship, that this call is extended to anyone who wants to follow, not just his disciples, not just heavy-duty Christians. It's for anyone who wants to be a Christian. And then we saw under the second heading, the requirements, what he calls people to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me in obedience. And then this morning, of course, we've looked at the rationale, the reasons uh, why we should heed the call, answer his call to become his follower. It's because your salvation, your eternal destiny depends on it. Secondly, it's because of your shame, the shame you want to avoid when he returns. And third, your sight, what you're privileged to see as his disciple in this world here and now and, and possibly what you'll see at his return. I believe these three form the nature of true discipleship. So the first question I want to ask you is, have you followed Christ in this way? Uh, was that what you heard? Is that the basis of how you became a believer? Perhaps not, but perhaps you've grown into that. 
and have come to understand that later. Listen, I want to ask you today, if, if, if you're not his disciple, then I urge you to hear Christ's call. He, he died for sinners on the cross. And friend, your sin can be forgiven by turning away from this world, um, uh, your sin, uh, your self-reliance to trust in Jesus and to commit yourself to him. So if you're here and you're not sure if you're a disciple, if you've ever answered this summons by Christ, come, be my follower, then I appeal to you to answer his call. And, and, and any of the elders would be happy to talk to you about that. Come talk to me. I'll be down in the front. If you want to, call me during the week. There's a second application, and some of you out there uh, don't agree with me, and you think, uh-uh, this is adding works to, to faith. If you're asking them to surrender, that sounds like you're asking them to, to perform a work uh, in order to become a Christian, and I don't agree with that at all. Well, I would agree with you that this kind of turning away from yourself would be a work, except that the Bible says it's God's gift to you as you trust him. Both faith and repentance are gifts of God. I don't care who you are. I couldn't do that on my own. I couldn't naturally turn away from my own sin. Who of us could deny themselves if Christ's spirit hadn't been working in us? I mean... Just watch a little baby, friend. They don't have it in them to not pursue their own desire. You see this in the youngest of us. Both faith and repentance are a gift of God. Uh, God gives us the faith to trust in his work on the cross. God gives us repentance so that we will turn toward him and turn away from ourselves and follow him. They're gifts of God, friend. That's why I say they're not works. There's something God gives us. Lastly, I would ask you, mom and dad, if that's the kind of gospel that's declared in your house. Look, you, you don't want your kids just to mumble the sinner's prayer. I know how it goes. They say the magic words, and you write the date down in your Bible, and that does it. And you call grandma and grandpa, and you text your brothers and sisters, praise the Lord, Johnny's become a Christian today when you have no idea that's what he or she has done. Mom and dad, proclaim this kind of gospel to your kids. Look, you, you want to follow Christ? This is what it says. This is what it means. And, and friends, has, is this the gospel your, your friends have heard? I mean... You know, uh, the ones who go, um, I don't know, wherever they go to church, is, is this the gospel they hear? Is this, uh, is there assurance based on the fact that, like Johnny, they prayed the sinner's prayer once and then one and done, and that's it? 
Or is it this? Look, if you're offended by this, again, it's what Jesus says. I believe you could search the scriptures and never see the admonition to ask Jesus into your heart. You go home this week and you, you're sure it's there. Well, then you find it and you show it to me. The Bible says plenty about our hearts, but never once does it talk about asking Jesus into our heart. It talks about trusting him for the forgiveness of sins, trusting in his atoning death on the cross, coming after him, denying ourselves, and surrendering our lives to him. That's what the Bible talks about again and again. I think this is the true nature of discipleship. So if you want to give me an earful about how wrong I am, I'll be right down here. Uh, if you're too afraid to do that in public and want to leave a nasty voicemail for me, well, you should really have the courage to see me face to face. I'm very willing to talk to you if you disagree. I was once where you were. And I disagreed wholeheartedly when I first heard this. And I thought it was adding works to the gospel. I have come to see it in a different light. So please come and see me if you want to discuss this. Let me close us in prayer and we'll proceed with the Lord's Supper. Christ Jesus, thank you for your word. And again, what I say is clear might not be clear to others, but by your spirit, make it clear to us. Let us see, Lord, that so much of what passes for Christianity in the United States is not. And Lord, I pray for us. Uh, Lord, for anyone here today who's never answered your call to become your follower, that they would. And Lord, some of us who did answer that call years ago, and we've kind of forgotten what it means, and perhaps we need to come again and say, look, Lord, I need to surrender myself to you all over again. Maybe that's what needs to happen today. Father, please, by your spirit, do that work in our hearts and lives. And above all, let us be faithful to share this word with those around us, our children, our friends, Lord, who think they're believers but aren't, who are basing their salvation on something that's not even mentioned in the Bible. Lord, let us deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you in obedience. Jesus, do this in us. We pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to...